Hello, and welcome to the Laverne Church of Christ podcast, and thank you for joining us. You can find us at 244 Old Nashville Highway, Laverne, Tennessee, 37086. We hope that any time you are in the area, you will stop by and join us for worship. Our Sunday morning worship is at 9 a.m., with Bible classes following. Our Sunday evening worship is at 6 p.m., and we also have a Bible study on Wednesday at 7 p.m. Evening scripture reading, I'll be reading 1 John chapter 3, 19-20. And by this we know, that we are from the truth, and shall assert our hearts before him. For if our hearts condemns us, God is greater than our hearts, and knows all things. Amen. What a blessing it is for us to be able to sing and to praise God in such a way that not only glorifies Him, but also encourages us and lifts us up and pushes us to be who we are called to be as His people. I hate that this is the last lesson uh, that I will have here because I have greatly enjoyed my time with you and appreciate all the wonderful food that was made just a moment ago. Um, you know, I, I know it was low calorie, low carb, but, uh, you know... Um, as is the case in the South. Um, no, it was excellent. Everything was excellent. Really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed my time here briefly getting to know the area and getting to know the community a little bit and know my way around here. You have a wonderful community, wonderful elders. Um, you're very blessed, very blessed with the godly men that you have here at this congregation. I've only known them for a brief time, but uh, in the time that I've known them, I've come to respect them and honor them and met many of your deacons who seem to be great men and their wives and the elders' wives, and I hope that you understand uh, that you are really blessed as a church, So, and I mean that. Which uh, quality is more important, self-expression or self-restraint? Which virtue, which quality would we say is more important? My ability to express myself as I deem fit, to express who I am, my desires, or which one is, or the idea of self-restraint. I have to actually temper at times my desires and maybe even my ambitions and my plans. Now we know that without a doubt our culture would say that self-expression is the more important quality. Unhindered self-expression, I might add. That the self can express itself in the way that it so desires without any hindrance internally or externally. That is, internally, don't make me feel guilty for what I do or for who I am. Don't do or say anything that's going to make me feel any sense of shame for something that I choose to do or who I choose to be. And refusing any external accountability, no legislation, should impede who I want to express myself to be. No authoritative figure, such as my parents, should have any say on who I am or what I choose to be. But this idea of believing that unhindered self-expression is the most important quality of our society makes a great assumption. And the great assumption is this, that the self is all that there is and the only judgment to whom we are held accountable that I am the only point of judgment in the universe. And if I'm assuming that the self is the most important quality and expressing the self without any temperance, without any hindrance upon it, I'm assuming that I'm all that there is, that man is the sum of all things, and that our judgment is the only thing that matters. 
But even in our self-expression, there's something that resists that assumption. And that is guilt and shame. You know, I do things that maybe I feel in the moment express my desires, express who I am and who I want to be. And I end up hurting other people around me and I feel guilty for it. Or I do things or say things that I might feel are authentic to myself and to who I am, but I feel shame for it. Now, why is that? If I'm expressing who I really am, why do I feel guilt for that? Why do I feel shame for that? Well, John uniquely speaks to this situation in 1 John chapter 3 because he speaks of the fact that there is a conscience a mind to whom my conscience will one day be held accountable. Amen. And that's what he is saying in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 19 and 20. By this we know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, notice this, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. That is, there is a grand conscience, an ultimate mind to which your conscience will be one day held accountable. That is the reality that Scripture faces us with. And if that is true, and that grand mind, that ultimate conscience is what the Bible says is God. He is the ultimate being, the ultimate mind. And if that is true, suddenly, suddenly, the more important virtue... If that is the case, my conscience is going to be held accountable by the ultimate conscience of God. If that is the case, then the most important virtue is not self-expression, it's self-restraint. Because this means that one day I will be held accountable. And therefore I have to restrain at times my desires... But the story that the world is... We're talking about the church and the world. This is our final lesson here. And I won't be too long. But the story that the world is telling us is that if you are unhindered in who you are, just be who you want to be, and if people would just stop trying to make you feel guilty in your own mind, if they would stop trying to pass legislation that would hinder who you really want to be, then you truly could be happy. Because the, the man is the measure of life. Humanity is all that there is, and that's all that matters. That's the story that the world is presently offering. What I'm saying is that the church offers a better story. And the story that the church offers is one which leads us to live a life of accountability before God. It leads to human flourishing. It challenges us to be disciplined in our lives before our Creator as well as others as a way to connect to God in real and tangible ways. Let's see if I can get my pointer here to work. There we go. And so the story that the world offers is one in which we are challenged and convicted to not be who we are in the sense of just expressing whatever desires we want without any outside input, but rather being who God has called us to be. And His doctrine and His teaching and His truth conforms us and convicts us to be who He has made us to be as His image bearers. That's the story that the church is offering the world. And that assumes three things that we're going to talk about this morning. And we're going to look at 1 John chapter 3, and I think I have the wrong reference down in just a moment. We're going to look at our life before God as the title of this lesson. But 1 John chapter 3, starting in verse 19. By this we know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before Him. For whatever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and He knows everything. 
Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask Him, we receive from Him, because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. And this is the commandment, that we believe in His name, in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as He commanded us. Whoever keeps His commandments abides in God, and God in Him, and by this we know that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. Now, as parts of this story to which God has called us to, the, the story that we're offering to the world, the perspective, the worldview that we're offering to the world outside of what the world itself is offering starts with this, that we are created with moral purpose. That is foundational to everything that we're teaching. It's foundational to what John is teaching here. Now, people have questioned through the years, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? You know, it says in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, we're made in, as humans in the image of God. What does that mean? The imago Dei. There's debates on that, but everyone agrees that an essential part of being created in the image of God is having the ability to reason between right and wrong. The ability to have a moral perception, to tell what is right and what is wrong. We often refer to this as the moral compass within us, that inner oughtness. There are things, you know, that you know are wrong, and nobody ever has to tell you that they're wrong. You know from a very early age that lying is wrong. You know, societies from the beginning of time have condemned murder in some shape, form, or fashion because they know it's wrong. Societies have, in many ways, equal ethical codes, although they might be different in different forms. But there are certain things we know, there are certain things we know that are right. We know that courage is right and cowardice is wrong. We know it's right to be brave and bad to be a coward. And nobody really has to tell us that. Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, he talks about this. He says, When the Gentiles, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law, notice this, is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Now, we're going to talk in a moment about how the conscience, obviously, is not the ultimate standard. But what John is saying is that and what Paul is saying here is that God has created us, has instilled in your heart and in your soul a desire to be right and to do right and to know right. And as a church, by the way, that should give us confidence because you're going out and you're talking to different cultures, you're talking to different ethnicities, you're talking to people from different backgrounds. And you might say, what common ground do I have? Well, this is the common ground that you've had. They're created in the image of God. They know what's right and wrong to a certain degree. And that means that they are going to have a guilty conscience. Now, they can live a life to where their conscience is seared and they reject that. But ultimately, God has placed that within the hearts of men. That we are created within a moral purpose. And this is what John speaks of in verse 20. Our heart condemns us when we do certain things. Our heart makes us feel guilty. It makes us feel shame. We do things that even though nobody else says is wrong, we feel guilty for them. And that guilty conscience, by the way, whenever I feel guilt and shame, it alienates me from other people because I don't want you to see who I really am. I read something the other day. I told this to somebody else, and it really convicted me. It was for a class I was preparing for at Dripping Springs. And it said, you know, if you don't really think that you're a sinner or that you struggle with sin anymore, how many people in your close inner circle would you feel comfortable giving a transcript of your thoughts to over a 24-hour period. Even your closest friend, your, your wife, your spouse, would you give them a transcript of your thoughts over a 24-hour period? 
See, we don't want to be known that well. We, you know, we want to be known, but not that well. But the point is, is that God knows us better than anybody else knows us. And it alienates us from others and alienates us from God. Colossians 1 and verse 21. You who once were alienated and hostile in your mind, doing evil deeds. Before Christ, I am alienated from the life of God. There is, a, there is a breach between God's life and my life, God's heart and my heart. And part of that is due to the guilt and the shame that I have. I, I can't approach God with my guilt and with my shame. And so personal expression without accountability isn't the answer. Because the reality is, is that it's not just that you feel guilty, okay? That's not what you, he's not just saying, well, you know, you feel bad about things and that's really, no, no, no. His point isn't you just feel guilty. His point is you are guilty, okay? You feel guilty because you are guilty. See, that, that's different from what the world says. The world says you feel guilty because other people are making you feel guilty, because society is making you feel guilty. And if you could just get rid of society's expectations, if you could just you know, break free from these expectations that your parents have, that society has about who you should be, you do you, then you would feel better. John says, no, no, no. You feel guilty because you are guilty. That's his point later in verse 20. He says, God is greater than our heart. And he knows everything. If you think you feel guilty, because and you, you only in a limited way know your sin, how much more so God who actually knows your sin? Who knows your sin better than you know your sin? Now that's interesting to me. Because each of us has, each of us has inside of us an inner lawyer, as one writer said. And what he meant by that was, whenever we start to feel guilty about something that we've done, do you know what we tend to do? We tend to justify ourselves, don't we? Well, I wouldn't have done that if they wouldn't have done this. Right? Well, the only reason I did that is because they did this. And we, we feel that our, our actions are justified because our motives are pure. Or at least we think they are. But what's interesting is, if we see that same action in somebody else, what do we do? We condemn them, right? So we, even though we feel guilt, we try and self-justify. And John says, that doesn't matter because it's not you that justifies you. The only one who can justify you is the one to whom you're actually guilty before, which is God himself. Because you're created as an image bearer and you're held accountable to him. If I have the image of God within me, I have a duty to live for him. And that's the story that we're going out to the world with. Listen, you were created for a purpose and not just a purpose for you to do you and be whoever you want to be without any accountability. No, your purpose is greater than that. You weren't just created for a purpose. You were created for a moral purpose. You were created in the image of God and one day you're going to be held accountable. And that guilt that you feel, that shame that you feel, isn't there just because of society, isn't there because your parents taught you right from wrong, although that's important. It's there because you were made for God. And if you're living away from the life of God, it's going to kill you. Literally, it's going to kill you. You're created for moral purpose. The second part of the story is this, that we are commanded to moral action. We are commanded to moral action. If you admit that your conscience points you to a higher conscience, then you are admitting that there is a purpose beyond the self for living. That means I'm no longer living for the pleasure of me, I'm living for the delight and the pleasure of another now. 
And let me tell you, just as a side note, that's a really freeing thought. Because there is nothing more miserable than simply living for the pleasure of the moment. I know Satan convinces us otherwise, but notice what John says. For whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. I'm no longer living for what pleases me, what makes me feel bad and good. I'm living for his delight. In 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 9, Paul says, Whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Whenever you think, and I've, thought, I've done this exercise with myself, see what you think. Whenever you think about what God thinks of you, what do you imagine? You know, whenever, if God had one sentence to say about you, what would he say? I know what he said about Jesus. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Does God take pleasure in you? Is he, is he pleased with your life? Is he proud of you? That's something to think about. And through Christ, because of the righteousness of Christ, God too can look at me and say, I'm happy to call Jacob my son. I'm happy he's mine. Because he has called me into this life of moral action. And when I do those things that please him, he looks at me and says, that's my son. I've adopted him. That's my daughter. She's mine. And he takes pleasure in us. That is the story that the world is offering. Now, this idea of commandment keeping is probably different than we sometimes think. Because whenever we think about commandment keeping, we think of maybe these oppressive commands that we can't ever possibly fulfill. But here's an interesting thing that I found in 1 John. John wants to point this out. Notice what he says in 5 and verse 3. This is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Now, I think that is a very interesting interpretive key to understanding the commandments of God. Because that means if I'm, if I'm constantly thinking, I can never meet up, I can never do what God desires of me, I can never be who God wants me to be, I'm always failing, I'm never doing what's right, I might not be thinking about the commands of God right. Because John says they're not burdensome. They're not meant to be oppressive. They're meant for our flourishing. And the two things that he hones in on are believing on Jesus and loving each other. <laughs> I remember a guy once, a preacher friend of mine, saying, guys, do you kind of, he was talking to other preachers, he said, do you kind of feel like every Sunday you're getting up and doing the same thing over and over again? I said, what do you mean? He said, well, I mean, Jesus says that the two greatest commands are to love God and love other people. And I feel like I'm getting up every Sunday and just trying to find a new way to say that. But I said, well... That's kind of foundational, right? <laughs> That's at the heart of it. Believing on Jesus. Now, we might say, well, there's a lot more to it. I get it. But here John says, if we could learn to trust in Jesus, really trust in Jesus, and really love and care for other people, then I actually can begin to have confidence in my relationship with God. Because this is foundational to what he is, the moral action he has called me to, is trusting in Jesus and loving other people. Now, there's a lot of people, unfortunately, who feel confident in their salvation, and they don't do either of these things. And there are some sincere Christians, and I know Josh knows what I'm talking about here, there are some sincere Christians who have such a genuine faith in Christ. I mean, and they love other people, and sometimes they're the least confident in their salvation. 
And John says, listen, if, you, if you're doing this, you're beginning to have this reassurance before God. This confidence because you're fulfilling what God has called you to. Now, I realize, again, that there's more to faith and love than what people say in the world often. Faith means fidelity, loyalty, obedience to Christ. Love means self-giving sacrifice, Romans 15 and verse 3. But if these are the guiding principles of my life and the moral, whenever I'm faced with a moral decision, I'm asking, number one, is this action going to make me more devoted to Christ or less? Is, is, is this in obedience to Christ or not in obedience to Christ? And number two, does this help me to love other people or is this simply something I'm doing to please myself? Those guiding principles begin to help me realize, okay, am I living this life that God has called me to? Am I living the moral action of life that God has called me to? And you might be thinking, well, yeah, but even if I boiled it down to that, trusting in Christ, loving other people, and that was the foundation that I began to work from, I still struggle. I still struggle because I know I'm not living up to the standards that God has given me. Brethren, that's why God's given us His Spirit. And I wish we talked more about this and more had time to talk about it. But He says in verse 24, this, By this we know that He abides in us and the Spirit whom He has given us. I should say chapter 3 and verse 24. But by the Spirit whom He has given us, through the power of the Spirit working within us, we, as He says in Romans 8 and verse 13, we put to death the deeds of the body. God working in us by His power to crucify sin and to bring us into, as we surrender to Him, He brings us into submission to His will and to His life. So this is part of the story. We are made for a moral purpose. We're created for a moral purpose. We're commanded to moral action. And when that is the case, we are eventually confronted with a reality outside of us. This is a very freeing thought. Notice that John speaks of a new type of existence. When we become aware of our accountability to God, when we respond to the obligations laid upon us, we, uh, he says, we abide in God. And what? God abides in us. We abide in God, and He abides in us. We're no longer on the outside. We're no longer an enemy. We are a child. And the language of abiding speaks of an intimate, deep, deeply intimate fellowship in which there is coexistence between us and the Father. It isn't simply metaphorical language. It is a real thing in which God abides in me and I am abiding under His will and in, within His purpose. And he says, this is actually experience, as he says within the text, through the power of prayer itself. As I come to pray, I come to realize God is in me and I am in him. Now, in our present culture, the self is reality. That's all that matters. My pleasures, my imagination, my talents, my success, my failures are the ultimate end to everything. And again, that is a miserable existence. It's pleasurable for a moment, right? But if you spend enough time in your own head, it's not a very fun place. And, you know, sometimes the most miserable thing you can do is sitting in your home and constantly thinking about how life has done you wrong and how you haven't fulfilled your dreams and how people aren't nice to you and how you've done this, you haven't got to do this. You know, people that think like that are some of the most miserable people in the world. I mean, it's just the truth. It is just the plain truth. And you know, whenever somebody comes to me and acts like that, or when I'm struggling with those kind of self-pitying thoughts myself, 
You know what I tell them to do? I tell them, listen, I want you to do me a favor, and tomorrow I don't want you to stay inside. I want you to go out, and I want you to find somebody to serve. Because you need to be confronted with reality that's outside of you. And you need to realize that there is something greater outside, a reality to which our inner self partially points. God points us to himself. He gives us a conscience that says, come to me, and I will make you. I am what you are made for. This then is our life before God, as John puts it. One, when we can be confident and reassured of our salvation from the condemnation of his judgment, a life of self-restraint and self-discipline as we seek to honor our God and to live for his delight. And this is the story that the church is offering the world. Now, some of you this morning, or this afternoon rather, are struggling with guilt. You know there are things that you have done that are wrong, and you don't know what to do with it. You're sitting there in the pew, and your conscience is pricked, and it's bothering you. Now, make no mistake. You are a sinner, and you don't just feel guilty. You are guilty. Far more guilty than you even assume. Sin taints and twists even our best desires and leaves us a child of wrath, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 3. But here's the point of the gospel. Satan wants you to bury that guilt. Satan wants you to bury it under distraction, under self-pleasuring, under busyness so that you don't think about it and you don't feel guilty about it and you don't feel shame about it. Just bury it down as, as deep as you can so it doesn't bother you anymore. Satan wants you to bury the guilt. God wants you to bring it to him because he's already dealt with it. And that's the beautiful message of the gospel. Because it is only at the foot of the cross where we can be made whole. It is only here in which true and lasting peace can occur. This is what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3, in verse 21, when he's talking about baptism. He says, and this is the antitype, baptism which now saves us, in which we appeal to God for a good conscience. And this morning, if you want that good conscience this afternoon, if you want a clear conscience before God, He's offering it to you. He's made you for that. He's made you for a moral purpose. He has commanded you to moral action and He confronts you with Himself, a reality outside of the self, and He calls you into life with Him through the cross of Christ to reconcile you and him. Why don't you do that this afternoon? Whatever your need is, together we stand and as we sing. Thank you for listening to this message from God's Word. If you have any questions, please email them to us at office at lavernecoc.org. Once again, we thank you for listening, and we hope you have a blessed day.